what we're here for. That's what we're here to do in honor and praise of you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Six years ago today, uh, I was supposed to preach here at Harmony Baptist Church in view of a call, which if you're not familiar with how the church works, is uh, this really great hiring process. You go through months of interviewing, uh, all kinds of questions and writing things and all kinds of feedback. Then they have you go preach somewhere else other than this church, because if you're terrible, they don't want it, your first experience to be in front of this congregation and you completely sour the whole experience. So I preached somewhere else, um, and then they were like, eh, he's okay. So they decided to bring me here to see what the people thought. And so the Sunday that I was supposed to do that, um, my wife was eight months pregnant, nine months pregnant, and that Sunday morning, our little boy Tyler showed up. So I did not preach that morning because I had more important places to be. And uh, it was funny, though, because we kind of knew as soon as they set that date is the day for me to come and preach, we are like, that's, that's when he's going to show up, isn't it? That's how it's going to work. Right? Because you kind of have this mindset where often when you make a well-laid-out plan, what do you know is going to happen? Not that. Right? In fact, do you ever get bummed because you planned something out so well, you're like, this is fantastic. Now it's never going to happen like this because we thought of it this way. Right? And so that today in this story where we're at with this uh, looking at the prodigal son, is we're going to see that his plan that he had in his mind is not going to be fulfilled the way he was imagining. That this picture he had of the life he was going to experience, of the joy that he was going to go through, of all the things that were going to finally be available to him, he's going to find that now that he's there, that's not happening. And so I really want to make sure we explore that and look at that because I think that's a, a, a frustration. I think that's a reality that each and every one of us has felt multiple times in our lives where we get exactly what we've been asking for, but it doesn't come out the way we want it to. Now, if you haven't been with us over the last couple of weeks, let me remind you of where we're at. We're in the book of Luke, uh, chapter 15, looking at a parable by Jesus called the parable of the prodigal son or the parable of the lost son. And when you look at Jesus' teachings, it's important to remember that he uses parables all the time. Now, Jesus was not unique in this. This was a common way that rabbis would teach using parables and stories. Why? You take unbelievably complex, huge, difficult things to explain, and then you relate them to kind of everyday experiences that all of us can go, you know what, I understand that. I can feel that. I understand the emotions, I understand the thought process. I can put myself in that person's shoes and get what's happening. And so parables are unbelievably powerful at being these analogies and these metaphors that allow us to emotionally experience what God is trying to display to us. The second thing that they did for Jesus is they really allowed him to kind of sort through his crowd. Right? Because a parable makes you sit there and go, let me think about this for a second. Who are each of these people? What do each of these objects represent? What is this story really about if it's not just about the surface level thing that we're hearing? Now the only people that would do that were people who were intrigued and interested and had a heart that was open to hear the truth of God. People who just wanted to dismiss God and ignore Jesus, well they could do that. And they could just go, oh here he goes with some story about some kid. Who cares? And so the parables allowed Jesus to also see where was the receptivity of people's hearts when he talked to them. And so in Luke chapter 15, we're actually in the third parable about lost things. The first one was about a lost coin. 
then there, I'm sorry, it was about a lost sheep, the second was about a lost coin, and now this one is about a lost son. And in each of these, what Jesus is addressing is addressing the Pharisees, who are his enemies, and their specific hatred of him because he loves the lost. Right? They continually complain every time they see Jesus that Jesus, you eat with sinners. Why do you do that? Right? You're supposed to be holy. You're supposed to be righteous. You're supposed to be representing God Almighty. And yet here you are and you eat and you talk with and you hang out with sinners. How dare you? They dirty you. They make you unclean. Why would you spend time with these people? Because what the Pharisees had done is they had stripped God out of the religion and only focused on the rituals, the traditions, and the laws. And they had used those to build themselves up and had reached a point of pride where they looked in the mirrors and said, we're amazing people. We are amazing. We are holy. We are righteous. We know the law and we live by it. We've earned God's favor. These people, ugh, look at them, the dirt, the scum of the earth. Keep them away from us. They might get us dirty. And yet here comes Jesus saying he is sent from God Almighty. And where does he go? Right into the muck. Right into the dirt. And they don't understand this. And so these three stories structured by Jesus are to talk about why does God, and specifically through the actions of Jesus, love the lost so much? Why? And so where we've been in the story is last week we talked about this man. He has two sons. That's how the story is set for us. And we discussed that as we look at this, the father represents who? He represents God the Father, the Almighty. And the two sons represent you and me. They represent the human people in this world. And really all we hear about is this one son, the younger son. And so last week what we explored is that this younger son, he is not happy with how things are. He is not okay with what he has in life. And he sees that things are not going the way he wants. Jackie? Jackie, we have a little issues with the slides. Would you mind moving it forward for me? And so last week, we discussed the shameful demand that he makes. Remember, he goes to his father, and what does he say? Dad, I want my inheritance now. I want my inheritance now. I want my wealth that comes from you, and I want to be able to leave and go do whatever I want to do. Which in many ways is the exact same thing as saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. That everything I want in life is being held up by the fact that you're breathing. Because if you die right now and I could get your money and be free from your accountability, man, I could do whatever I wanted. I would have my heart's content. I'd have wealth, I'd have accessibility, I'd have freedom from you, and my dreams could come true, Dad. And so this younger son, we see this shameful demand. The second thing we looked at last week was that the father, surprisingly, what does he do? He gives it to him. He gives him the inheritance. And you and I, we don't fully understand this. Like, let's be real. In our culture, this would still be kind of a shameful thing. Right? If your kid showed up to you today and said, I want my inheritance from you now. Right? We would still, even in this culture, go, eh, that's kind of shady. That's disrespectful. It's not very loving. We don't like that. But in these times, oh my goodness. If you look at cultures throughout history, there are high-respect cultures and there are low-respect cultures. Anyone want to take a wild guess where the United States of America is in 2018? We would fit into the low-respect culture. Okay? But we, we aren't formal anymore. Not only are we not formal, like, do you, how many of you hear little kids use sir and ma'am anymore? Right? How many of you still see people hold doors for folks? Right? It's such a rare thing in our culture to see this anymore. We don't see the high and low respect. You ever look back at pictures from the 40s and see all these people in suits and realize they just dressed in suits to go somewhere? Like just to go eat. They're going to put a suit on. 
right? Nowadays, you go to Walmart and you're like, are you, you in your pajamas? Like, you, should you be wearing that outside? But we don't have this high respect culture anymore. Israel, unbelievably high respect. One of the most shameful things you could do would be to disrespect your parents. And for this son to go in front of his father and say, I want my money now. I wish you were dead. It's one of the most disrespectful things that you could possibly manage. In fact, in Old Testament law, this son could have been killed for this kind of action. And so does the father scold him? Does the father yell at him? Does the father punish him? Does the fa father disown him? No, the father gives him the inheritance. And so we see this unbelieving response from the father that seems to make no sense. And so what we talked about last week is, where does that come from? What's Jesus' point? His point is, this is exactly like the beginning of the Bible, right? God creates the garden, he puts man in it, and he gives him everything he wants. He gives him free will, and he says, you can choose. You can love me, you can be with me, and I will fill you with life, I will fill you with love, I will give you everything you desire, or you can go your own way. But if you do that, that other path is just full of death. And what do we choose? We ran right towards that death. Right? We pushed off the Father who created us. We pushed off everything He'd given us. We said we want to be our own gods. We want to rule our own way. We want to make our own path. And we ran towards death. And you know what? God let us. He let us make that choice. And so today what we're going to dig into is that this guy's not done. It's one thing in the shame and the disrespect he showed in asking for the money. Now we're going to see how he lives with that money and realize he's not done running in sin. And to be honest, I think this is a thing that's probably pretty understandable to most of us. I think all of us have been either personally in that moment or watched a loved one in that moment where you think they've hit rock bottom and they haven't. Right? You're like, there is no way it can get worse than this. And then immediately as you're saying that, what happens? It gets worse. Right? You're going, there is no way this son disrespecting his father, putting money over his family, and leaving him could get any worse. It does. And so today, that's what we're going to look at, is we're going to look at his shameful behavior, right? He's made a shameful request. It's been surprisingly answered by his father, and now we're going to see how he acts as he gets what he wants. So if you have your Bibles, flip with me, and we're going to look specifically at verses 13 through 20 in Luke chapter 15. It says here in verse 13, And not many days later, the younger son gathered together everything and went on a journey into a distant country, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now let me break this down for you because we miss some of the context of this, this parable because we don't understand how things worked back then. And so a couple things to understand about this phrase, he gathered together everything. What the father gave him was his inheritance, which would have been part of his land, part of his animals, part of his actual items that he owned. Maybe a little bit of money. But it would have been actual material items. And so for this son to gather together, what that word actually is talking to is the fact that he's liquidating his assets. Right? Dad's given him land. Dad's given him animals. Dad's given him valuable things. He doesn't want that. He wants cash. So he gathers that together as fast as he can. Now to understand this, that's not him being smart. Why? Jewish laws made this terribly difficult to do. Why? One, land was not allowed to pass from family to family. A grain couldn't take their land and sell it to the Joneses. The land had been given by God to those families. Thus, the only thing you could do is you could lease out the land. And back in their day, they had this thing called the year of Jubilee, which meant every seven years, all debts were forgiven. So if I leased you my land, 
Seven years, max. Year of Jubilee would hit, land comes back to me. So of this land he's selling, he's not really getting full price. He's getting maybe seven years of lease money on the land. Then of the material possessions, right? So let's say the father owned some beautiful golden items that he wanted to sell. You can't buy someone's possessions, their inheritance, till they die. So the son can't even, though the father's given it to him, the son can't sell these items yet. So whoever's buying them is buying them basically on layaway. Here's what I'll pay you now so that in whenever your dad dies, I get that. What this means is this guy's getting pennies on the dollar. He's taking all this inheritance, which if you study how it worked back then, was not just the work of his father. That's generations. That's generations of wealth. That's wealth built by his father, by his grandfather, by his great-great-grandfather. I mean, all the way down the line, families have worked to build this wealth. This son gets it and goes, how much cash can I get for it now? How much? Second, he journeys then to a distant country. Now remember for the Jewish people what that meant. In the land of the Jews, there was the Jewish people, the Israelites, and then everybody else was a Gentile. And Gentiles are unclean. Gentiles do not know God. Gentiles do not have their morality. They don't have their way of life. So not only does he make unbelievably disrespectful demands of his father, then he blows the inheritance of generations for pennies. He then goes, I don't want anything to do with you people. Forget you, Dad. I don't want anybody in the family. I don't want anything to do with God. I don't want anything in my culture. I want as far away as possible from everything that has ever shaped me. I'm out of here. Now, I want you to picture this this way, and the reason I'm dragging you through this slowly is that Jesus was doing the same thing with his people. What is he doing to the character in our picture of this prodigal son? Right, like Some of us might have been able to go like, okay, you could forgive him the asking for the inheritance. But as we just keep moving on, what's happening to this guy's character? It just gets worse, right? It just gets worse worse. And especially to the Israelite people who have all these traditions and these laws that protect against these things. What Jesus is doing is he is making the prodigal son become more and more irredeemable in the eyes of his audience. What he doesn't want is for him to get to the end of this story and for anybody to look at the prodigal son and go, hey, he's an okay guy. He wants you to get to the end of this story and go, that guy's a scumbag. That guy is trash. I would never want to know an individual like that in my entire life. That's what Jesus is building up as he talks about this guy. Doesn't stop though. So he gathers everything together. He went on a journey to a distant country and there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now, let me talk about that word squandered. This is my favorite thing I learned this week. Every now and then I read, I read something and I'm like, that's awesome. How did I not know that? The word squandered, actually the term used is winnowing, which is a term that goes from when you would farm and harvest. When you winnowed, you would take the grain, you would throw it in the air, and you would let the wind blow it. And the pieces that were junk would disappear and the good stuff would fall. So what he talks about is he talks about this young man takes his wealth and winnows it. Now, I don't know about you guys, but what I pictured is, is the prodigal son making it rain. That's what I pictured. Now, if you don't know what making it rain looks like, that's when people with dollar bills go to clubs and throw the money in the air going, look at me. Look how much wealth and money I have. That's the picture God wants you to get of this young man. Right? He doesn't kind of like money. 
He loves it. He loves the way it makes him feel. He loves the way that it makes him feel like he can do things. He likes the way it makes people look at him. Right? He wants this wealth not just to change what he has access to. He wants it to define how people look at him. And so his wealth, man, it's a show. It's a show for everybody to see. Look at what I got. The other thing that we realize about this is the terminology here is not painting the picture that he is buying nice stuff. We're not getting the picture that he just bought a nice house or a nice car. We're getting the picture of what people do when they go to Vegas. Right? We get the picture of a, what happens here stays here. Nobody talk about this. We're talking about him living in such a way of drinking, women, all things that would have been looked at in his past life as unbelievably despicable. He is living an unbelievably shameful life. And then look what happens. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country and he began to be impoverished. Now think about that for a second. Think about being in his shoes. He's just had more money than he could ever dream of. He blows through it unbelievably quick. And as soon as that happens, as soon as he's spent it all, what happens? The world around him changes and he now finds himself in a terrible situation. The world is struck by famine. Now, brothers and sisters, this was probably one of the hardest things for us as modern Americans to actually put ourselves in these people's shoes to understand. Have you guys ever done this? Do you ever go to your pantry, look around and go, we have nothing to eat. There is absolutely nothing here to eat. I'm starving. I'm so hungry, I could eat my arm and we've got nothing. And if we translate that, here's what it means. I haven't eaten in 35 minutes. I'm kind of bored right now. And all we have is Cool Ranch Doritos and I want nacho cheese Doritos. And when we say the, the pantry's empty, what we actually mean is we have more food in our house than most people throughout the world have ever seen in one location in their entire lives. And we're like, the pantry's empty. I'm starving. No, you're not. It's not empty and you're not starving. When we talk about famine, we're not talking about a shortage of food. We are talking about there is no food. We are talking about people eating whatever they can find. We are talking about people eating garbage. We are talking about people eating rotting food. We are talking about people who will steal and kill because the food is so scarce. In fact, in most history, when you read about famines, you also will read about people being cannibals. That's how hungry it is. So we're not talking that he doesn't just have a little bit of food. We're talking a severe famine has hit the land and people don't know what to do. How do you think he feels at that moment? Right? Rewind. I mean, the timeline doesn't seem to be very drastic here. Months ago, he's sitting in his father's house, surrounded by wealth, surrounded by loved ones, surrounded by family, surrounded by food. And now here he is. He's blown through all of his inheritance. He's in a foreign place where no one wants to deal with him. He has no more money and a famine is hit and he doesn't know where to find food. Now, brothers and sisters, for many people, you would go, this has to be rock bottom, right? This, this has to be the basement. This has to be as low as it will go. What should he be thinking about at this juncture? Right? If you're in that place, what do you think about doing? Do you think about maybe going home? you think about maybe just admitting you've gone the wrong way? Not him. Not yet. Look what it says happened. 
Verse 15, and so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him in his fields to feed swine. This is another sentence that you really got to break down. Because when we talk about that word hired out, it's not really a great translation. It really talks more about him being a beggar. And so what you kind of get the story of is imagine that through this time where he was spending money like crazy, he surely was hanging with some influential, powerful, and rich people. Right? But not real friends. Have you ever noticed that? Right? You throw a party, you have way more friends than when you're moving. Isn't that weird how that works, right? Free food and drinks, and you got a hundred friends. They need to move a couch, you can't find one. Right? So as soon as his money dries up, what does he find about all these friends he's had? They're gone. And so what this word actually best translates, when you look at the Greek, is more he attached himself to. He basically found one of his rich old friends and like just hounded the guy. Give me a job, give me a job, give me a job, give me a job. Please, I need a job. I'm not leaving, I need a job. And finally he gives him a job, but look at the job he gives him. He gives a Jewish man the job to go feed and take care of the pigs. Now folks, do you remember what the Jewish view of pigs were? Were pigs clean animals? No. You weren't supposed to be around pigs. You didn't eat pigs. They're ceremonially unclean. So this guy goes, you want a job? Fine. Get lost. You can go feed my pigs, which also is a job that sends you normally far out of the city. This is really more of a get lost. What's the bare minimum I have to do to get you off my back? That's what he ends up taking. And it says, And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating. And no one was giving anything to him. Anybody ever been to a pig farm? You ever seen what pigs eat? We don't feed pigs good stuff. Because they can pretty much eat anything. They normally actually normally get rotten, garbage, trash food that kind of like mixes together in this slop that's just disgusting. This guy's so hungry, he looks at that and goes, man, I wish I could eat that. I wish I could eat that. So let's pause right here. Has Jesus made the prodigal son a relatable figure for us? Is this a guy we like? Do we see a lot of redeeming qualities in this individual? No. And notice, even when he hits his first moment where he's lost everything and the famine strikes, notice what's still happening. The one sin that started it all still owns him. He wants to be his own man. Right? Why won't he go home at the beginning of that famine? Because he isn't going to ask for help. He's got this. He will fix this. He will figure a way out. He will make his path. Even if that requires him to take the worst job in the world, I will do that before I go back home and ask for help. You ever been that proud? I know I have. I've had many moments like that in my life. Not at this quite of a low, but many moments where I was like, I've got this. I will fix this. I will do this. I will make it right. Which, by the way, was what got him into this at the very beginning, right? That sin has grabbed him and it owns him. It absolutely owns him. And it's only going to be here at rock bottom that we're now going to see the turn. But I want you to understand a couple of things before we look at that. All of this comes from 
the son's separation from the father. I think that's something you and I have to fully and totally embrace. I still believe many of us have the completely wrong lens on how we look at Christianity. And even if you would ever say this, I think emotionally a lot of people still respond to Christ this way. God comes into my life. He gives me these difficult laws and rules that are no fun, that restrain my life, that restrict what I can do. And if I can somehow abide by those, then I get to go to heaven. And when we do that, what we need to realize is that isn't Christianity at all. Not even close. You can call it Christianity. You can look at verses and try to make a case that that's what he's saying. But there is nothing in the Bible that supports that kind of life. That is not how this works. That is not the way Christianity is built. In fact, that's how every other religion works. Every other religion teaches you can earn heaven. You can earn paradise. God just flat out comes out in Christianity and goes, no you can't. Paradise is for the perfect. You're not perfect. Sorry. That's how that works. The only way you get in is by Him offering it to you as a gift. And so what I want you to see about this story that I think is probably one of the most profound things for us to understand is, is when you and I separate ourselves from God, we are separating ourselves from life and from love. That's what He is. God is not a harsh old man with a a cruel set of rules that make your life unfun. He is the very source of life and love. The reason we're here, the reason we experience joy and peace and happiness and fullness and contentment, anything good that you've ever tasted comes from Him. All of it. In fact, even the things that we often pursue in excess as sin, the root of them comes from God. Right? Many of you probably participated in gluttony this week, right? Gluttony is wrong, but who made food taste good? God did. God designed everything. If He had wanted it to simply be, hey, you take this one little bean a day and it gives you everything you need, He could have. But did He? No, He made all these unbelievable flavors and your ability to taste those flavors and your ability to enjoy those flavors. And He gave you that food that would give you that kind of satisfaction. That was a gift from Him. Now what Satan does is try to make us pursue that in excess, but the original thing is good and it's a gift from God. Sex. So many people pursue it in excess. They make it everything. It's about how sexy do I look and how many partners can I have and how much pleasure can I have. But at the end of the day, what we forget is God's the one that made it that way. Yes, He gave you context and rules in a way He wanted it to work, but He's not against sex. He's the one that made it pleasurable. All these things are God giving gifts to His people. Anything we love, anything that brings us pleasure, anything that gives us joy comes from the Father. And so when you and I go, well, I want to be away from Him. Why? Running from the Father is like running away from this man's father. The prodigal son leaves home, and what does he chase down? He chased down death and destruction. He runs to nothingness. He runs to a place where there, are no, there is no love, there is no friendships, there is nobody who supports them, there is no food, there is no sustenance, and he is in the muck and the grime, alone. And that's what God wants us to get through this parable. When you and I run from God, we're Him. 
We're the prodigal son running the wrong way as fast as we can. And from the outside, anybody watching this guy would be like, what an idiot. What are you doing? But in it, in his shoes, he can't see it. Isn't that sadly the way it works so often? That we are the most blind to our own weaknesses? How many of you have seen that in relationships before, right? Your friend's in a terrible relationship. You and anybody who can see them knows it's a terrible relationship. They'll sometimes even ask you, like, do you think we're going to make it? No. I don't think you're going to make it. Why? Because he doesn't like you. But they can't see it. They're blind to it. And that's what this young man is. He is blinded by his pride and by his arrogance and by his desire to be his own God. Which, don't get me wrong, folks. When we say be our own God, I think people go, that's crazy. I don't want to be God. No, what I mean by that is you want to dictate your own path. You want to rule your life. You want to set the course. You want to run this race. And you want to get where you want to go. And you don't care about anything else. That's wanting to be your own God. And what Jesus is trying to tell us here is, be your own God. You can do it. This is where it leads you. This is where it takes you. I want to leave off right there on that. Because I think that's something you and I don't fully understand. Separating ourselves from God does not give us more freedom. It doesn't relax the rules of life. It doesn't open up more doors. When you and I sever our ties with God, when we run away from Him, we have disconnected ourselves from the very fuel that helps us run. We have disconnected ourselves from life and from love and from the very light of this world. The sad part for this young man was, and the same is a sad thing for you and I, some of us just don't even realize how much good we have because of the Father. This guy had never seen famine his whole entire life. He probably thought it was an impossibility. What he just never realized was, no, the only reason he'd never seen it is because his father had taken care of him. His father had always planned for it. His father had always prepared for it. His father had always sheltered it from him. But out there on their own, he gets to see the real darkness and he realizes, wow, this is worse than I thought. This is uglier than I thought. I'll leave you with one last passage. It's a passage you should know. Most of you know the first part probably by heart. It's in John 3.16. It's funny, everybody remembers 16, but I like a whole section that's in In John 3.16 through 21, it says this. It says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has already been judged, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought by God. And so what I want you to see in that, brothers and sisters, Your darkest moment has already happened. That moment where this prodigal son sits, you and I have already sat there ourselves. And that's when you and I sit face to face with God, trying to be our own lords. Sitting in a world where the merit of our own lives determines whether we're good or whether we're bad. And in that moment, what we've already seen is God the Father loves us so much 
that He sacrificed His one and only Son to provide us a way out. That even at a moment like this, where we have taken the prodigal's character and we have tarnished it to a place that any human being would say, he's trash, he's irredeemable, it's over. And God comes in and goes, no, it's not. No, it's not. This may be too much for you. It's not too much for me. And so the reason we've spent two weeks running into the darkness of this man's deeds is so that when we come next week and we see the love that the Father is going to pour out on him, we will understand how beautiful, how profound, and how amazing that love is. Because at this moment, all the people hearing this story think the prodigal is lost. Except for Jesus. Jesus knows that there is still love and there is still redemption for him. Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your unbelievable grace, mercy, and forgiveness. Father, we thank you for the love, the life, the joy that you pour down on us each and every day of our lives. Father, may we never take for granted all the wonderful things that you've given us. May we realize, Lord, as we look around this world, that everything that brings us joy, everything that gives a smile to our faces, everything that puts peace inside our souls, Father, that's a gift from you. Father, you love us so unbelievably well. Father, I pray that if there are any prodigal sons sitting in this room today, Lord, that you will speak to them. That, Father, they won't have to run to the very bottom of that rock pit. But that, Lord, on that path, that they will turn and look and see you and realize there is a better way. Father, we love you. And we thank you for never giving up on us. And in the wonderful, beautiful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Maria is going to come up and lead us in a song. Uh, feel free as she's leading us in song. If you need something to, or someone to pray with you, feel free to come forward or go to the back and see Brother James. And in just a few minutes, we'll be taking the Lord's Supper. Uh, so be uh, preparing your heart for that. Maria. Let's all stand.
need some prayer, there's still some time for you to come forward. or those who are helping with the Lord's Supper, please come forward. Uh, just a few reminders as we take the Lord's Supper. Uh, God does instruct us in a uh, good book that when we take the Lord's Supper, there's a few things to remember. One, this is for believers. This is for those who have proclaimed Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and have given their lives over to Him. Second, God instructs us that this is something we're supposed to do with a clear heart. And so He asks us a few things. One, if there is any sins that we have yet to repent of, that we've yet to lay at His feet and ask for forgiveness, that instead of us taking the cup, we first do that. We first admit those sins to Him, we first repent of those, and we get right with Him. Second, He asks that if there is any brother or sister in Christ who's asked us for forgiveness, and we're refusing to give it, we're letting anger and uh, sadness fill our hearts instead, that before we take the cup, we should first focus on making those relationships right. In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread, and drink the cup. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Dear Father, we pray over this bread, Lord, and we pray that you will remind us this represents the broken body of Christ, Lord. The sacrifice, Lord, that he was willing to make on our behalf. He was willing to put himself, Lord, upon that cross and to bear our sins, to bear our guilt, to pay the price that we owed, Lord, is a gift beyond words. We thank you for loving us in such a profound and powerful way. Father, may you bless the bread and bless the person who takes it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
14, it says, While they were eating it, he took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to them. And said, Take, eat. This is my body. As a family, let us eat. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will never drink again of the drink of, of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. Heavenly Father, as we take this cup, we are reminded, Lord, of the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood, Father, that washed us clean of all our sin and that covered us in His righteousness. Father, it is only because of that that we have the peace and confidence to know that one day we will be in paradise again with You. And Father, we look forward to that day where we will sit at the table and we will eat break bread with you and all the saints from past and present. Father, we love you. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It says in Mark right after that that they sang a hymn before they went out to the Mount of Olives. So I'm going to ask you guys to stand with us and we're going to sing a uh, closing chorus. Are you?
All right, a couple things, folks, before you leave. One, Donna, if we can get new bread, why can't I get my big gulp of juice? I want a big cup. I've been talking for 45 minutes. I'm thirsty. These little things, come on. Second, December 11th, Tuesday night at 5.30, we are doing our last food bank service day of the year. Let's make this a big one. So if you haven't been out, meet us at the San Antonio Food Bank, 5.30 p.m. Uh, we sort through the food. We pack it up. It's, it's really actually a ton of fun. Uh, if you haven't come, please join us December 11th. Remember, you've been given a spirit of what? Power, love, and self-discipline. And you got a mission. It's to go outside those doors and make disciples, folks. Have a great week. Love you all. Together, together, waiting here as one.